0: Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 Festival podcast, 125 Years Are We There Yet?, proudly presented by the National Library of New Zealand and the Royal Society Te Aparangi, with support from the Ministry for Women's Suffrage 125 Community Fund. To commemorate 125 years of women's suffrage, we assembled a panel of extraordinary New Zealand women to discuss how far we've come since women were granted the vote and how far we still have to go in the fight for gender equality. Featuring pioneering human rights activist Georgina Buyer, historian Dame Anne Salmond, musician and writer Lizzie Marveley, head of Aotahi, the School of Maori and Indigenous Studies at the University of Canterbury, Sasha McMeeking, and Paula Penfold, consulting journalist on Stuff's Me Too New Zealand investigation, all in conversation with Kim Hill.
1: Kia ora whanau. We'd like to start this evening's proceedings with uh, one special song. Are marching, marching in the beauty of the day. A million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people here. shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts do as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us rose. This is Megan, I'm Gemma, we are from the Wellington International Ukulele Orchestra and it is our great pleasure, and in fact Kim Hill has this in her contract to be introduced in this way at every event she does, Um, it is our great pleasure to bring you the marvellous, the most wonderful, the the, the world-class broadcaster and New Zealand woman, Kim Hill and Friends.
2: Emma Grace Wooden and Megan Salole of the Wellington International Ukulele Orchestra, of course. Bread and Roses. That phrase originated in a speech given by US socialist and feminist, Rose Schneiderman. She was claiming a worker's right to something more than subsistence living. In New Zealand, of course, trade unionist and politician Sonia Davis called her autobiography, autobiography, Bread and Roses. It had become a poem and then a song by Judy Collins. Kia ora and welcome to this discussion entitled 125 Years, Are We There Yet? Thanks to the National Library of New Zealand and Royal Society Te Rangi, and to Harper Collins and the Auckland University Press for enabling Lizzie Marveley and Daman Salmond respectively to be here. Um, let me introduce them first, then. Daman Salmond is one of New Zealand's most highly regarded anthropologists, historians and environmentalists, Her work on cross-cultural encounters, gave us a fresh way of looking at our country and ourselves. And the aforementioned Lizzie Marveley, musician, singer, columnist, founder of a media project for young women called Villainess.com, and author. Her first book is called The F Word, Growing Up Feminist in Aotearoa. <laughs> Sasha McMeking, Ngaitahu. She's the head of Aotahi, the School of Māori and Indigenous Studies at the University of Canterbury, and co-founder of Tu Maia, a Māori business designing leadership and entrepreneurship programs. <laughs> Georgina Bayer, the world's first openly transsexual mayor of Carterton and MP for Wairarapa. She's been a trailblazer for the transgender community. She was a champion of both the civil union and the prostitution reform acts. And Paula Penfold, an investigative journalist, notably the Tainapora case, New Zealand's uh, deployment to Afghanistan. She's with Stuff Circuit, and she's a consultant to the New Zealand Me Too investigation. Uh, Teresa Gassing has said that given the struggle to secure suffrage 125 years ago, no goal that New Zealand women today could possibly imagine is impossible to achieve. For her, no, we're not there yet, but are we clear where there is? Someone said, maybe it was me, Feminism is like housework. Every few years, you have to do it all over again. <laughs> and right now, it feels like another clean-out, doesn't it? And once again, we're wrestling with what feminism is. Author Catlin Moran, How to Be a Woman was the name of one of her books, says she understands the confusion. Am I a feminist? I don't know. What does it mean? I haven't got time to think about it now. She reckons a quick way to work it out. Put your hand in your pants. (laughs) Do you have a vagina? Do you want to be in charge of it? If you've answered yes to both questions, congratulations, you're a feminist. (laughs) Check. Check. But then what? We will leave time for questions from you at the end of the discussion. Can I invite each of our panellists to give us a brief summary of their view on whether we're there yet? And please make it longer than no. (laughs) Damon Simon.
3: Well, as you say, uh, where is there? You know, what's the destination? What would a utopia for women look like? And I I really echo what Kim just said about it being like housework. It's the the woman's work is never done, uh, so to speak, because I was interviewed yesterday um, Just yesterday in preparation for a a thing that's happening up in Auckland to do with the 125th anniversary of the suffrage achievement. And I was interviewed and uh, the journalist came round to the house and I found that we kept talking, he kept asking me, I was talking a bit, he asked me to talk a bit about my life and my work and experience. And the... He kept asking me about Don Brash and what Don Brash had said about this, or about Bob Brocky and what Bob Brocky had said about the role of Māori philosophy in science. And when, then we were back to Don Brash again, and I kept thinking, what is going on here? Why, why are the things that I've been so passionately interested in for a lifetime, you know, why am I still hearing voices that sound so much like the ones I heard when I was young on these particular topics? And, and why, why these? Why are these blokes being held up as a measure of the things that I've thought about and written about over all of those years? So I asked them, I said, well, you know, what's, what's going on here? What's the gambit? Why are we talking about, you know, Don Brash? And I'm somebody that's explored the Māori world for a lifetime and, and found it the most amazing journey, and there's so much to talk about, so why are we talking about this? And we ended up talking somehow about uh, Virginia Woolf and Three Guineas, actually. And so this afternoon, when I flew into Christchurch, and and, uh, I was just sitting in the hotel for a a little while, and he sent me three guineas, which is Virginia Woolf's Reflections, a letter that she wrote uh, to a guy that asked her how women could help stop World War I. And it was wonderful to read it again. I mean, I hadn't read it for years and years. And it just reminds me how close to my lifetime so much of this is, because Virginia Woolf was writing about Cambridge. She was writing about the frustration of seeing her brother and many of the young men, the apostles, that she knew so well in Bloomsbury. They'd all gone to university. They'd had that chance to study, to to expand their minds, to think about the world together, uh, the comradeship of that. And she hadn't experienced that herself, only at second hand. And when I went to Cambridge as a a Nuffield fellow, a young woman with three small children um, and, and with our family, In 1980, King's College, where I was a Nuffield Fellow, had just admitted its first woman Fellow the year before. And that year, while I was there, Johns debated about whether to admit women to the college. And there was this huge debate going on, a roaring debate, and they were flying people back from leave and trying to resuscitate people on their deathbed so they could vote (laughs) to try and stop it. And they did. They stopped it. They actually stopped it that year. And then sort of, when I came back to New Zealand after that amazing year, and what I had been doing for the preceding, probably, decade, is really deeply exploring with Edwarda Sterling, our media and others, Māori philosophy, Māori ways of thinking about life, about children, about love, about ancestry, about land, uh, going to marae with them and so on. When I came home, I found that we were in a country that had started to adopt a really different kind of philosophy, and that's what I want to talk about just very briefly. And thinking about, are we there yet? This idea of the autonomous cost-benefit calculating individual started to grip you know, the, the way we, we, we were thinking as a nation, and we, we were re- starting to reshape our institutions, schools, hospitals, universities, government departments, as though they were businesses, and running them to the bottom line. A kind of hyper-individualism that argued that uh, fulfillment comes through individual achievement solely. The relational focus of the things that I'd been working, understanding, trying to um, delve into with Eru Era, media, and on Marae and so on, but we were heading in the opposite direction as a society. And I think now, after you know, 30 years of, of that experiment, I think that while that philosophy in some ways gave women new freedoms, it also cost us. It cost us a lot. Because the workplaces and the communities that we began to craft at that time, I think, are more ruthless in many ways and transactional than those when I was a young woman. Working environments based on short-term contracts, poorly paid often, where risks and costs are thrown onto those who are doing the work. And managers are expected to minimize costs and maximize profit at the expense of the people who make up that institution are now commonplace. And this is a kind of philosophy in action which I think has been toxic for our, our society and which has been very damaging for women. There's not much time to talk about this now, but I noted that um, just a couple of days ago, a study was released, um, carried out by young people talking to 1,000 other young people in this country. And they were all saying that economic insecurity, student debt, unaffordable housing, and insecure low-paid work were huge contributors to stress and anxiety for them. Many wanted a fairer, kinder economy and society. They want to be able to look after these beautiful islands of ours. If they're having children, they want to be able to have them in the first place and to raise them with a degree of security and, and tranquility which, in many ways, I think I enjoyed in my own childhood. So I would say that, yes, there were gains. There were individual freedoms that we've gained over the last 30 years as a result of this emphasis, this hyper-individualism. But I also think we're in danger in some ways, we have been, of losing our souls, of our care for others, uh, certainly in many of these institutional frameworks. And for women, Uh, I think this is particularly tough because in the workplaces still, so often, a kind of command and control philosophy takes rule, and very often, as we've seen in the case of the legal profession, men are still in command of that particular set of uh, powers and, and hierarchies. So what price work if you have to trade away some of your deepest desires and dreams? You know, what price freedom if it's at the cost of happiness? What price a thriving economy if we've got children dying of third world diseases? All of these things, these are questions that I'm asking. And I think those costs are borne more acutely than women, for all the reasons that I'm sure the others will explore. So for me, the dream, we're not there yet, no. in fact. In some ways, we've lost ground. In my opinion, I think we need to have places, communities, workplaces, families where we can be relatively secure, happy, in which boys and girls, men and women, can flourish as equals. Kia ora, I. Kia ora, I. And until that happens, I don't think we can say that we're there. iak ki
2: I'm sorry to be simplistic, can I just check, were you just saying that if women ran the world, everything would be good?
3: No, 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 I wasn't saying that. I'm saying that I think, um, you know, I could could explore some of the philosophies around complementarity and the idea of balance. And I think if, if we ran the world together as equals, if men and women were truly equal, if boys and girls could grow up equally, you know, secure, happy and thriving and prospering, then the world would be a good place. I don't think any of us can do it on our own. And I think that's been perhaps the fallacy of the hyper-individual philosophy. It's not possible for human beings to be happy on their own. I don't think. I don't know. Depends who you are. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come
2: back to that. Georgina mm-hmm.
4: no koto kato. Good heavens, how do you follow somebody such as Dama Salman, um, remarkable woman, as they all are sitting on the stage here today. Can I first please acknowledge how incredibly humbled I feel to have been invited to be part of this particular panel? Some might consider me somewhat as an imposter, uh, (laughs) uh, but I hope I am not, because some of the most major figures in my life have been women. Of course, I have to mention my mother, um, but I have been in the company and under the mentorship of some amazing women in my life, and one partly introduced by the song we heard this evening, The incredible, the wonderful, the late Sonia Davies. She was the lovely little piece of um, (laughs) firework that walked into my mayoral office one day in the wider Upper and said to me, um, Well, she walked out with me, signed up as a member of the Labour Party, put it that way. And then she kept persisting afterwards because she had a belief in me from afar. I had never met her before in my life until she walked into my office that day. Of course, I knew of her, she is an icon. And um, and so I was sort of a bit, I was a bit fangirly around her, I have to say, when she walked in, so getting me signed up to the Labour Party was just easy. (laughs) But she looked from afar at what I was doing as the Mayor of Carterton and I think she had an idea that I might be destined for greater things and would suggest a number of times uh, that I should uh, run in the 99 election. I was just grateful that I was the Mayor of Carterton, quite amazing I thought from someone with my colourful background and had been lucky to secure that job which I loved dearly. But um, although I didn't think I would win the wider upper seat, I thought it was certainly a good platform to raise some local issues. And if it hadn't been uh, for a major political party who were backing me uh, to run in that seat, which I don't think they thought I would win, uh, but we did. And Sonia was there backing me up every inch of the way. She would come out on campaign husting speeches and visits when she was able because she was very frail. At that time, her health was not the best. In fact, shortly or before the actual election day, uh, she fell ill enough to have to be taken into Masterton Hospital. And the amazing charisma and power of that woman insisted she, that she got wheeled into theater with her Labour Party rosette pinned to her pillow. That was the mark of a woman, and that is a woman who backed me, and I am most grateful for that. But the question is, are we there yet? And yes, Kim, the simple answer is no. I think from post gaining the vote in 1893, incidentally passed by a male parliament, that. It was a very slow momentum that built before we even got our first woman in parliament. And then even slower as it built up, perhaps in the last 30, 40, 50 years, it has been rapid what women have been able to achieve. Uh, But they earned it. They had to endure influenza epidemics, 1918. Well, we all did, or the country did at that time. War when much of our male nation was away and were slaughtered and women were left behind to keep the home fires burning. The Second World War, our Women's Land Army, which included one amazing woman, certainly from the Wairarapa, Ani Te Tau, who was in that area, very vigilant, and it emancipated women from beyond or from behind, I believe, uh, the kitchen sinks, the child-rearing, the looking after into having to broaden their horizons. So by the time I reckon that that war ended, a woman had found quite a new independence and that they were able to do uh, for not just themselves and their families and their communities and the country to keep things happening here uh, while men folk were away. Let us not forget women who were at the theatres of war, perhaps not entirely on the front line, but certainly behind, providing the support, the comfort, that care, whether it be nursing or whatever, um, over there, uh, they were all a part of it. Women have been present, obviously, uh, during all of those tremendous upheavals in the growth of our nation. Then we come, I guess, to the liberations of the 60s the pill, all of that sexual freedom abounded at the time just because of that which to some extent it seemed to have unburdened women from having to be continually breeding um, and it gave a new sexual freedom and of course the emergence of what we know as the feminist movement into more practical things, into acknowledging and recognising uh, that the value and the worth of what women had to offer was way beyond being domestic, and that they had potential that should be reached. But we hit brick walls, we hit barriers put in our way, folk feeling somehow disabled um, uh, by this new and powerful movement that's coming forward. Outrageous, controversial things being said truth being spoken that was never really spoken about uh, before uh, coming to the fore. An emancipation, I suppose, that helped us move even further and further. In my um, <clears throat> brief time in politics, comparatively speaking, for a moment in time, when the Helen Clark-led labor the government uh, came into power, for a brief moment in time, Our top five constitutional positions in the country happened to be held by women. And I think men suddenly looked around when that had happened, sort of not by any particular plan, it just did. And we were there. We had the Governor-General, we had the Prime Minister, we had the Speaker of the Parliament, we had the Leader of the Opposition, and we had the Chief Justice of the time, all women. What an amazing and remarkable moment in time that was, that I think just engendered even further um, momentum uh, to move forward, that we women can and do hold responsibly uh, these positions in our country. Um, We have had a certain amount of equality enter into the parliament, not good enough yet, but we are moving toward a more equal balance within our parliament. Now the boardrooms of the country are a different story, and there are still barriers and there are still, um, shall I say, unconscious bias going on, (laughs) which really is another term for prejudice, discrimination, bigotry and hatred. And I have been fortunate uh, to be able to become involved in the world of women. I am a guest, I guess. One has to earn one's place, I believe, to be able to call myself truly part of you. I am a transsexual woman, that is easy to say. There is a transgender activism going on at the moment, which even I find a little daunting and confusing and challenging. And even I'm having to reassess some of my views on the new and various transgenders that there are out there. And there are elements of feminism now who are pushing back against that because they feel that much of what women have gained over the last 125 years is now gonna be somehow ridden on the coattails by this transgender lot. And um, I just had to do an interview with the Dominion Post before I flew down here today because of that very reason. And my solution or my response was simply the two sides need to come together, intelligently, calmly debate their differences and issues and educate each other on what it is that finds this division at the moment. We do not want to be divided. Our solidarity is most important in order that we move collectively together forward for a more positive future. Are we there yet? No, we are not. But a substantive amount of the agenda has been addressed. Thank you. (laughs) I dream that stuff
2: up, <laughs> You know, if, as you say, those top positions held by women, we still have top positions held by women, and yet we're not there yet. Do you subscribe to The View, I think it was Gloria Steinem, who said, it's not a question of having a bigger slice of the cake, we have to remake the cake.
4: Yes, I would agree with that. Um, because there's so many conventions, I think, that are yet to be challenged and perhaps torn down. And I think men have got to address some of the issue, frankly, themselves. I don't know if they feel under siege somewhat by the power of women these days, Uh, but um, we don't want to exclude them necessarily. We don't want to demean or undermine, you know. uh, We have to work in my opinion, in tandem, together. This, what what Dame Anne mentioned um, in hers, I think for us to be a society that flourishes in more ways than just money, honey. (laughs) You know? And I have to say from my experience in the sex industry, I got an insight into men at that time that was rather interesting and confronting. And no matter what people may think of the sex industry being, well, the argument's always been about demeaning to women, uh, particularly, but not only. And um, the situation with things like the Prostitution Reform Act was uh, not about to legalise prostitution. Actually, prostitution was never really illegal, it was soliciting um, that was illegal. But it was about health and safety, human rights. It was about protecting those who find themselves working in the sex industry. Some against their will in lots of ways, others who made a choice to do that and they morally could fit that into their head. But it didn't take care of in an unregulated, down in the dark, murky world um, of the issues of abuse, brutality, rape um, that occurred and there was no justice for those workers to seek at that time and the male clients got off scot-free and without any reflection upon them as far as the law was concerned at that time. But anyhow, back really to the point of that. I, I just mentioned that because I do get criticised a lot for having been a, a supporter of that piece of legislation and I am still determined to stand there and defend it, frankly, uh, because we're in a much better position as far as that's concerned than we were prior to that piece of legislation. But the cake does need to be remade. We need to, uh, dare I mention it, I don't wish to offend anybody, but religious- Oh, go on! (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what the hell. Um, (laughs) Religious dogma is responsible for a lot of inequality, frankly, and defined roles within the Bible or whatever of where women must be. My encounters with Brian Tamaki in the Destiny Church during the civil union um, uh, debate that went on in the early 2000s, um, it was venal. I have grave concerns about someone who has the man up campaign that is code for women back to the kitchen sink, men you take your position as the top of the, uh, as the, top of the tree and, um, and relearn your machismo and uh, I'm sorry, I have huge issues about that and as for conversion therapy, that is a breach against human rights in my view. <laughs> We all watch, quite often these days, Gloria Vale pops up, and for those of you who live near to the scene of all of that, really, more closer than I do, (laughs) in Wellington, I look at that and I think, oh my God, some of them have been born into it and know nothing different. And um, that, in my view, is also an outrage, a breach of human rights and it particularly seems to um, be detrimental to women uh, because, and detrimental to men frankly because they're brought up with an attitude in that environment uh, that is negative really. However, if a
2: woman in glory Vale tells you she's chosen to be there, does that make it all right?
4: No, I don't believe
2: it. All right, we'll come back to that point. <laughs> we will come back to that point about choice. Paula Penfold. <laughs>
5: Kia Fano, what a pleasure to be here, thank you very much Word Christchurch for inviting me to be a part of this very esteemed panel of women. Georgina, I don't think you're a guest, I think you're a very, very proven and welcome part of the sisterhood, and uh, it's a pleasure for me to know you. I'd like to pick up too on the point that you make about discussions like this being about educating each other. I mean I don't know about you but I've noticed noticed lately that arguments have they seem to have become so binary you know I'm right and you're wrong is the extent of the discussion often and sometimes social media for all it can be great can can reduce arguments to I'm right and you're wrong and so I really welcome your point about that we need to start engaging in a proper discussion and educating each other. So clearly it's a rhetorical question. I mean, clearly we're not there yet, and being a journalist, I mean, I quite naturally want to take the negative on things, I'm afraid, quite often. But I've been intentionally working on making an effort to practise some gratitude lately. And so I have, honestly. (laughs) And so, rather than be instantly, (laughs) (laughs) I was a mean, cynical laugh. (laughs) So rather than be instantly dismissive, because patently we have such a long way to go, it made me actually stop and think when we were asked to talk to this: Are we there yet? About actually the things that we have achieved, rather than the things that we haven't achieved. However, (laughs) being a journalist, I guess I am a little bit inherently cynical. And so for every positive I came up with, there kind of was automatically a negative attached to it. So I apologise for that. So what I did was I wrote a listicle. I thought you'd like that word, Kim. I I wrote a listicle uh, in no particular order. Some personal, some kind of societal on this topic of whether or not we are there yet. Number one, the good news is the CEO of the company I work for, Stuff, is a woman, Sinead Boucher, and 50% of the senior executive team is women. And I'm very proud to work for a company that takes that very seriously. However, the bad news is, and I (laughs) I was on a flight sitting next to this gentleman earlier this year, we got chatting, you know, and I, I don't know how this came about, how does this come about? We got talking about pay parity, you know, <laughs> how those all blacks going, you know, gender parity. Anyway, it turned out that I was preaching to the converted because he works for PwC and this is his very precise field of interest, so he gave me the stats. And this is the bad news. The stats were that a PWC survey last year showed that of 143 CEOs and country managers surveyed in New Zealand, 4% were women. And the proportion in a different piece of news a couple of months later, the proportion of women in top jobs in New Zealand companies has sunk to the lowest level since 2004. Number two, the good news is, this is a little bit personal, but anyway, I'm going to go there. I trust you people. (laughs) This is good news. We can reclaim as women, I think, some agency over our sexuality. And I am experiencing that personally without getting too personal for the first time. because recently I started dating after... Oh, I know! <laughs> I know, right? After coming out of a marriage that I'd been in for half of my life. And it is an eye-opener what happens out there in the dating world, let me tell you, in mostly good ways. And it's an eye-opener to me about how empowering it can be for women compared to what it might have been like 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's the good news, that's enough detail (laughs) for now. The bad news is New Zealand has the worst rate of family and intimate partner violence in the world, and according to figures reported in the Herald, 80% of family violence incidents are not reported to the police. Number three, good news. Sort of good news. We have a Me Too NZ campaign, which, as Kim mentioned, I'm a consultant uh, journalist too, ably led and instigated by my colleague Ali Moore, who's doing all of the heavy lifting, and I have so much respect for Ali and the work that she's doing. So What it's done is it's opened up a path through which mostly women can voice their stories about workplace sexual harassment in New Zealand. That's the good news. The bad news is we need a Me Too NZ campaign through which mostly women can voice their stories about workplace sexual harassment in New Zealand. You know where I'm going, right? It's good news because we're doing it and we needed to do it. The bad news is did we ever need to do it? Because within a week there'd been more than 200 messages come through the Me Too NZ campaign. Now there have been hundreds more. And so I applaud the team that I'm working with for the incredible work that they're doing. I despair at the number of stories there are to be told. Number four. The good news is that a couple of weeks ago, there were some figures out from Statistics New Zealand showing that the gender pay gap is closing, sitting at 9.2% for the June quarter of this year, the smallest, second smallest, rather, gap in around 20 years, right? Getting smaller, supposedly. The bad news is that's two weeks ago, that news. Today, there's a report out saying New Zealand's pay equity progress is so slow that we won't achieve it until 2044. (laughs) And I think about my 84-year-old mother, who has quite seriously, quite literally been campaigning since the 1970s for pay parity for women. And if this is true, that we won't see it until 2044, she won't see it in her lifetime. And she despairs about that, and I feel very sad that that is the case. Number five, there's only five in my listicle, this is the last one, this is the good news. I don't know how many waves we're up to, but I look at the next wave, and that is my teenage children and the discussions and the conversations that they have around these issues pertaining to women and equality, and to issues pertaining to equality across all sectors. And I take great heart that they have these conversations with their friends, with passion and compassion and intelligence. And I feel quite a joy that actually the future seems to be in good hands and they're tackling these issues in such, you know, they have such a command over it and in such a progressive way and I feel very confident about that. The bad news. I don't have bad news for that one, actually. (laughs) I just want to leave you on that positive note because I really do feel that young people are seeing a way forward with this. Thank you.
2: Um, just talking about the, the gender pay gap, only 20%, this is the survey that came out last year, I think, only. of it is explained by differences in education or occupation, the fact that women are more likely to work part-time. The other 80% is driven by what they called unexplained factors. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I can't see the gender pay gap ever really vanishing until we get transparency
5: of income in the private sector.
2: Do Mm -hmm. you?
5: I think 2044 is optimistic, frankly. It's not actually that far away. But
2: unless private companies, corporations, are forced to be transparent about exactly what they're paying to who?
5: Yeah, it's hidden, it's completely secret. There is no motivation at the moment for private companies to be paying women what they deserve. One thing in those stats that came out a couple of weeks ago that I found quite heartening is that for women under 30, the gap was much smaller. So I don't know what that means necessarily, but it's there. It needs some kind of analysis, but it's there. Thank you. Um, Sasha (laughs) McMeeking.
2: Step away. Here's my microphone. Do you want to put it on? I'll never get through that hand. Just hold it.
6: <laughs> hold it in your hand. And hold that. Tēnā rā tātou kā tōa, tōatahi kaitamehiki o kūtou, a iokurangitira. Uh, my apologies for causing feedback before I've said anything. Yeah. <laughs> danger, danger. Um, so, I was born after it became unlawful to pay men and women different rates. I grew up in the 1980s, and for that, I paid tribute to the women in this audience and on this stage. Who created the Girls Can Do Anything campaign? Because I formed a consciousness utterly convinced that girls can do anything. So thank you. Uh, (laughs) 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 On behalf of that generation, uh, apparently, um, you speak on behalf of the entire generation. Um, I'm also mindful that within five generations of becoming fully formally enfranchised in our nation, our Prime Minister just had a baby while in office. And that is something that there is no way that could have been foreseeable to those who champion to change the world. Um, But I'm not Pollyanna enough, enough to think that just because our PM had a baby, that we are there yet because I was inspired by the generation before me who advocated for change. I was inspired by the people that championed lofty ideals, led civil rights movements, and literally forged new human rights being recognized in our world. So I grew up wanting to be you. And then I had that heartbreaking discovery um, that you can't do what's already been done and get away with it and that this notion of being a human rights advocate, that this notion that human rights would get us there, um, I no longer believe that. I believe that human rights are critical as an ethical demand. They are priceless as a reflection of social solidarity, but in and of themselves, they don't change the world. They can catalyze, but they cannot maintain social change, and I find that really troubling, because working out what goes in between that ethical demand and the distant there that we can't yet define, I'm not entirely sure what the answer is, but I do try and think about it every night. And my ponderings so far have got to a few places, and the first is the one we've already talked about, which is economic justice. In the 21st century, the vast majority of protests globally are about economic justice. We are no longer fighting um, on the basis of grand normative debates. We can agree the principles, what we cannot agree is their expression. Because when we talk about economic justice, pay equity, um, the security of women's employment, and so on and so forth, that we know so well. If we want to address those issues, we are talking about remaking the cake, and the baker doesn't like sharing their recipe. <laughs> and, um, but I, I still have hope about how we can progress economic justice. But that hope is very much conditioned by the other great barrier to being there yet, which Paula has already talked about, and that is violence in our communities. Look to your left, look to your right, the statistics say that one of those people will have experienced violence. Expand it a little bit more, one in four will have experienced sexual violence. And these are not just statistics, these are human stories. Two people in my close family are dead because of sexual violence. And that should be something that we feel. But when it comes to these embedded issues, it's not a gender-based reason for their existence. The economic justice concerns that affect women don't come solely from issues about the perception of women. The reason that women are still beaten and raped is not solely because of the perception of women within households it's far more complex. If we take the example of violence against women, yes, there's a perception contribution. Yes, there is a contribution that comes from the agency of the woman experiencing that. There is also a contribution from the sense of agency that the perpetrator feels. And both of those senses of agency connect back to our economic independence. Uh, to our educational achievement, to our mental health system, to the quality of our criminal justice system, and how all of those things interrelate to create the society that we live in. So if we are ever going to truly get there, to that very important there, we need to engage with those fabulously wicked, complex problems of the 21st century. The multivariate problem that has only multiple solutions. And I believe to do that, to engage with the complexity of these problems, to solve the violence in our homes, we need to change our education system, our health system, our mental health system, and so on and so forth. When we are doing that, fundamentally what we are doing is creating new social habits. I think when it comes to how we address these issues, we miss the how to form a habit in society. We focus on how to create normative change, how to have the rights recognised, or the law changed so that such and such a thing must or may not happen. Or we focus on the individual. This is what an individual can and should do. But at the top and at the bottom, Um, You only get the crust and the icing. We need the filling of the cake in the middle for it to be a truly, or not necessarily nutritious, but at least enjoyable (laughs) experience. And to create those social habits, what we have to do collectively is the equivalent of um, the man-made paths, or woman-made paths, or people-made paths, or dog-made paths, depending on the day where we're all really familiar with, you'll see a park and there's concrete asphalt paths around the outside, and through the middle is the path that everybody takes, that is the dirt path made by shoes. That is what we need to make in the way of social habits. We need to create more dirt paths, because a social habit is formed by constant wearing disruption. That's what we do with our shoes. And that's what we need to do in our communities. So I am heartened by things like the Me Too campaign. I'm heartened by the He for She campaign, which is fundamentally directed to creating new collective behaviours. Because we can't maintain our commitment to a human rights standard without some social support structure which enables us to form that habit. It's like quitting smoking, having the patch will only get you through day one. Having the social support to learn something else to do when you desperately want a cigarette, um, like a fiddlestick, if you're so inclined, um, is the next stage in our habilitation to wherever that distant there might be. And I believe that we will get there because I can't not believe that. I am conscious of the women who have literally given their lives around the world to create a better place. And I'm mindful of my one-year-old daughter and the world that she will inherit. And with the number of people in this audience and the speed with which you decided to come, you are at least the core of a group that are committed to creating a social habit. Each day, Yara, Yara, Nare, Tinara, and thank you for the microphone. Cura <laughs> you. Session.
1: Are,
2: are you saying, um, that an unfair society has made victims of both men and women, that men deserve understanding as much as women?
6: Well, um, I want to redefine the question,
2: because I went to law school. Um,
6: (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I, I don't see any of us as victims, but I do see the scope of our personal autonomy being constrained in a real sense I don't think constraint well, on autonomy agency, right? yes but constraints on agency don't create a sense of victimhood I think by default um, they can create a range of um, responses some are constructive and some are very
2: destructive so where', where it's, do I have an answer to the question oh, there? Do we... Um, the I know weird... you went to law school, but you know... <laughs> but I, I didn't I, grow up to be a politician,
6: so I, I, I should have... be able to give you a straight
2: answer. I mean, I, I do... I, I did get the impression that... you thought that men were as... can I use the word disabled? Um, derailed as much as women. Um, I wouldn't say it that simply. I
6: think that um, absolutely everybody needs understanding, but um, more we need understanding of how the various threads of causation to any particular problem need to be unravelled as a whole, Um, because society as we know it is inherently conservative. The status quo is given every opportunity to replicate, And so to to create a new mould, to create a new habit, takes conscious choice, and
2: conscious choice takes understanding and help. Particularly when we've been living for centuries. I was having a conversation with somebody today, who might be here, where we have been ruled by the male imagination. There is such a thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) Lizzie Marvely, it's
7: time for you to brave the feedback. It's so fantastic to be here this evening and I've just been sitting there listening avidly as these inspirational wahine toa have been feeding my soul. So thank you all so much. Are we there yet? Well, that question has already been answered many times tonight, but I'm going to answer it only from my own particular vantage point. Uh, I don't claim to speak for anyone else, and uh, I'm going to answer that as a 29-year-old woman. I was born in 1989. to have anywhere near as much wisdom as you do, Kim. Don't worry. And uh, I was raised in a time of girl power. I was raised listening to the Spice Girls. I was raised playing cricket with the boys. I could throw much further than any of the boys. Um, And I grew up in a family where both of my parents worked. Both of my parents actually were co-owners of their business. So they were equal at work and at home. And so I grew up with this really internalised idea, as has already been spoken about this evening, that I absolutely could grow up to do and be anything. And I am so grateful. I think that that is one of the great gifts that my generation has received from our older sisters, our elder sisters, I should say. So thank you so much for that. But I then, I grew up in Rotorua, I went to Rotorua Girls High, and Girls High was a very, uh, you know, feminist environment. We were all encouraged to stand up and to speak our minds, and so I, I cut my teeth there. I learned to be a bolshy, ranty feminist there, and then I won a scholarship to go to King's College in Auckland, the, uh, the Christ College uh, kind of equivalent, shall we say. And I walked into King's College in 2006. That was 26 years after girls had first arrived there. And I remember walking into the dining hall on my first, in my first week at the school, and I was standing in line with my fellow boarding girls. And I turned around and I looked at, out at the rest of the mainly boys who were eating breakfast already, and I saw that a bunch of them were holding up pieces of toast. And I looked a bit closer. And I realised that what they'd done is they'd got pieces of toast and they'd got some marmite and they'd drawn a number onto that piece of toast. And then they held them up as the girls walked past, ranking our attractiveness out of 10. There was also a chant at King's College at that time uh, that went something a bit like this. Get back in the kitchen! That happened at many a sports day and an inter-house competition always aimed at us girls. I also became very quickly aware that, you know, I'd always felt like I really wanted to um, be in a, a leadership position, be a prefect. God knows why. It was way more work than it was worth. Um, but I decided that I wanted to pursue these leadership ambitions. And, but when I uh, got to King's, I realized that there was an insurmountable obstacle to my becoming the head prefect, and that was that I didn't have a penis because you could not be the head prefect at King's College until, I think, about five years ago, if you were a girl. So I grew up in a real girl power environment, but then I went into this totally, totally unempowering, disempowering, I should say, environment. And then I went into the music industry. And I loved music, and I'd always wanted to be a singer. And then, you know, within... A few years of me being in there, Uh, when I was about 18 it started, I was groped, I was spanked, I was forcibly kissed, and much worse. Um, And that went on for a period of about six years before I got fed up and I decided that I was going to uh, follow my love of writing. Um, So, you know, I, I had all of these amazing opportunities, but still, I was coming up against sexism blatantly, and that was only really in the last uh, 10 years. So, you know, then from there I went and I became a columnist, and I love being a writer. I have such an incredible time, and it's an amazing, amazing profession to, to be in. But during the last two and a half years, while I've been a columnist, I've been called uh, and I've written down some of the oh, no. some of the best ones. <laughs> Nowhere near all of them. There's actually a folder on my computer that's just full of these. Um, just not the
2: c word, all right? No, I'm not going
7: to say the c oh. word. Um, but I've been called a hoe, a stupid bitch, a Tupperware European Maori, a tongue it fuckwit, um, a stupid two hole. Uh, That's a really derogatory new term for a woman. Um, We actually have three holes. I don't think they ever really saw a woman (laughs) naked to come up with that one. Unsurprising. Um, So, no, you know, in my experience, I do not believe that we are there. But... You know, my experiences are only the tip of the iceberg, as has already been spoken about tonight. We still have a society in New Zealand where we don't have equal pay. We have uh, a justice framework where abortion is still illegal in this country. We have some of the worst domestic and sexual violence statistics in the OECD. We have one, yay, solitary female CEO in the whole of the NZX50. Uh, and we have only 19% of directors serving on publicly listed companies that are women. So we also have a situation where we recognize people like Kate Shepard, right? We all know who Kate Shepard is, she's great. But does anyone here know who uh, Naniwa Itirangi is, apart from Dame Anne? <laughs> what about Meritititai Kahia? Te Puyahirangi? few know her. So we have this great inequality even in the stories that we tell, um, not just between gender, but between different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. So, you know, on the flip side, we have lots of great things happening. We have our third female prime minister. We have the black ferns finally being paid. Yay! <laughs> we have longer parental leave. We now are giving victims of domestic violence that absolute no-brainer right uh, of taking leave. I don't even understand how that needed to go through Parliament. But, you know, all of these things are very good things, and I do stand here and I look to the people in my generation and I feel really enormously heartened that we are going in the right direction. But I don't believe that any of those things, having a female prime minister, having the black ferns be paid, um, or giving victims leave... Uh, are really actually getting to the core of the structures that we need to change. Some of those things are enormously important and we are starting to chip away, but a lot of the things that are holding us back are structural And as women, we are led to believe that they're individual. We're led to believe that we're not enough. We're led to believe that we have to do more and be more. But actually, it's very difficult to overcome the structural barriers that are in our way. So no, in my view and in my experience, we are not there yet.
2: This is a third wave feminism question.
7: Okay, I'm fourth wave, but hit me. I know.
2: <laughs> but how did listening to the Spice Girls, famously described as prancing around <laughs> in revealing outfits while singing about men, Mm -hmm. help your development as a feminist?
7: (laughs) Um, Because it just gave me the language of girl power. I don't for a second believe that the girl, the Spice Girls were, you know, driving at structural change, they weren't. But for a whole You know, to see, for a little girl, to see a group of women who were there together, who weren't fighting against each other, who were everywhere and who were at the top of the music industry at that time, it was empowering because it was about visibility. And I think at that time, it was feminism or, let's say, you know, fourth wave, us fourth wavers were in our infancy, so our thinking was pretty surface and simply at that time seeing those women um, doing their thing was empowering. But since then I've certainly moved on and I hope now and I see now, (laughs) I see now that there's, uh, you know, a long way to go in the music industry. But there are some incredible female artists who are starting to redefine things and I think that that's inspiring.
2: I I just want, we haven't got a hell of a lot of time. It's such a big uh, uh, choice. I want to come back to that issue of choice because it seems to me that fourth wave feminism is saying that whatever women choose is is feminist because women choose it.
7: I disagree with that. Do you? I do, yeah. Um, I think that choice is about, human rights and individual rights, uh, but feminism is actually about equality. And so a a good example I would give is the choice to uh, take a husband's name, say, in a heterosexual marriage is a choice and is completely, you know, anyone's choice. It's fine. You, You do you, babes. But really, in my view, it's not a feminist choice because it's not about equality. So, you know, if you point me in the direction of half the world's male heterosexual population that are lining up to take their wives' surnames, then I might start to believe that it's a feminist choice.
2: But social media is full of women, young women, who seem to suggest that if it makes you feel good, then it's feminist. I feel good and I choose it, therefore it's feminist. Megan Murphy, who's the editor of... um, a mag called Feminist Current, she says, you wouldn't hear a socialist say, for me, socialism means starting my own business. Mm. And that's Mm. the equivalent of it. Do you ever get a bit unnerved about how choices become paramount, which is another way of saying individualism, Mm, right? When feminism is obscured, Yes, by, I don't know. Is this lipstick feminism? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I think we are talking oh, about
7: right. that. Um yes, I do, personally, because I, you know, I believe I'm a product of the 21st century, I believe. Yay, you know, you can be an individual, that's fine. Just you do whatever it is that you choose to do, but don't call that feminism. Because actually feminism is something much deeper and, you know, the fact that we have choices as women is a feminist victory. But that, that doesn't mean that every choice that we make is a feminist decision.
2: Complicated. Yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? Um, questions from the audience. We have roving microphones. If you have a question, would you put up your hand, please? Would the lights have gone up? We have a hand up down here. And the microphone is coming to you. Keep your hand up so they can see where you are. Yep.
8: Just um, on the subject of choice um, and the importance of it for women, um, I might think that it was my choice to put lipstick on this evening and come here, but was it really my choice, or is it years and years, hundreds, thousands of years of socialization that tells me that the way I present myself and my image is important? So um, That's the question. Wonder, mm. yeah. That's quite right. I wonder how real that choice is. And also, um, I might choose to make certain choices for myself, but how does my personal choice affect others? You know, it's, um, I might um, choose to do certain things, but um, that might affect the right of others. Uh, you know, what you were saying about social habits and creating um, sort of um, the sort of habits that will support um, a structure that will empower women. Maybe we should take responsibility, because I think we live in a modern society where personal rights um, are very important, but we don't really put a lot of emphasis on personal duties and responsibilities. So maybe that's what we need to think
2: about. So just as all blacks aren't allowed to get drunk and take all their clothes off, leading women shouldn't be allowed to wear lipstick.
8: No, I'm, I'm. I just think it. It really helps um, to have a level of consciousness about maybe a way to start is to have that level of consciousness about um, whether our choices are real choices. Oh or not. God, I mean, we all
2: think that we just feel guilty all the time, <laughs> all the time. Yeah. You know, every time I put lipstick on, I feel guilty.
7: <laughs> why is it always women's fault? You know, why? Why is it always our uh, we're always kind of blamed for this, you know, that if we wear lipstick, we c- we're, we're bad feminists, and if we don't wear lipstick, then, you know, we will we'll be attacked I, I, I think, on that I side.
8: Need, I don't think we need to approach it in that way. I think we just, um, you know, we can approach it in different ways. We can sort of... Um, and, uh, the is with us, do we turn it as something to blame ourselves and put ourselves down? Or do we use it as a way of having mindfulness about what's happening around us,
5: who's controlling
8: power, about power dynamics, and so on?
5: I'm just kind of so- depressed that we're still talking I about this, frankly. I know, I agree. Because- You know, when I did women's studies in the 1980s, we were talking about this, and I felt guilty putting on bloody lipstick to go to my women's studies I see you haven't
2: put any on tonight,
5: Paula. (laughs) And honestly, I think there are more important concerns now. I'm depressed that we're still worrying about this three decades since I was doing women's studies.
2: Any other hands up?
9: Thank you. Um, This is a funny question. I have been hurt by men, but I have been more disempowered by women.
2: That wasn't a question.
9: (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Well, it's a difficult situation. Have you got any comments? Could
2: you in any way be more specific about the disempowerment that you're talking Um, about? It's quite a personal thing. It it came
9: from my mother, primarily, and it came from other women, and I don't want to say it was jealousy, but it cut deep and it really did hold me back from, you know, achieving certain things.
2: One can only be disempowered if one allows oneself to be disempowered, perhaps. Harsh, (laughs) I know. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I,
6: can I just stop you digging that hole in oh, bigger? You. Um,
1: <laughs>
6: <laughs> because I, I think... Remind <laughs> me to hire
2: you as my defence lawyer. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I'm not a real lawyer, so we might need some PR around that. Um, I, I think that there, there is a lot of talk within Māori communities about the consequences of colonisation. Um, which I I think is um, relatable, if you'll just bear with me for about 60 seconds. So there is um, one of our famous intellectuals says that the most devastating consequence of colonisation is that we lose trust in ourselves. And when we lose trust in ourselves, this is me ad-libbing on the end. I think that we lose the confidence to be kind to others. And I think that basic um, human process applies in lots of communities where there has been an experience of marginalization or oppression. Where we have um, had to live with some sense of imposter syndrome, which the research says to us that most women do. Um, When we feel like an imposter, when we feel insecure, one of the things that we do as humans is bite other people. It's the lobster in the boiling water scenario. Um, So I am not surprised that if there are lots of stories in here um, where women have been injured by other women um, who have done that from a place of insecurity. But my experience is the reverse, um, where I have benefited from remarkable generosity from men and women. And I think that ultimately the only way through the implications of feeling insecure and therefore acting in a spiteful way, um, is to. I, I used this line before the Prime Minister, just for the record, um, is about kindness, because we can only overcome feelings of insecurity, I think, through acts of human kindness.
9: Um, I have the privilege to be a general practitioner and one of the great joys of that, that job is to hear a great, many people's stories. And I've worked recently in two very different general practices, one in an extremely deprived community and now a very privileged community and most of my patients seem to be um, lawyers or molecular biologists or other terrifying things. But in my previous practice, I, I always felt very conscious that I'm... I'm a professional, I own my own home, I'm an autonomous, solo mother who's never really experienced much in the way of disadvantage. But for many of my patients, it was as if the 60s had never happened, that they had no obvious rights, they had no consciousness of themselves as worthy people. They were—they saw themselves and lived their lives as second-class citizens. And that's today in Christchurch and Wollstone for so many people I saw, and I feel guilty no longer being an advocate for them. But what can we, as I imagine most people here are have paid for a ticket to come and be intellectually stimulated and challenged that we are largely quite aware, privileged, middle class. What can we do as, as women, and, and there are a nice number of men here too, to reach out to the people for whom this is a fantasy? Who would like to take that question? (laughs) Paula. I've been thinking about
5: similar issues, actually, and I think that we, uh, the fact that you acknowledge your privilege and speak to it is the first step. And I think those of us, you know, myself as a Pākehā feminist, I need to learn to, I think the acronym is STFU. When it's not my business, right, if it's an issue, we need to think about our intersectional feminism, and when it's an issue that concerns a woman of colour, I STFU, right? So I think it's about giving the agency and power to the people and being an ally where we can, but never assuming to speak where it's not our place to, is the first step. Because there are plenty of women and men in the situation that you're talking about, who are able to advocate for themselves or for people, you know, who are part of their community. I think think it's condescending when we try to do it too much ourselves.
3: Don't don't you say too that, I mean, insecurity, yes, you know, if people are not certain about themselves, they've been hurt themselves, they strike out, and that does happen, happens a lot. Um, But at the same time you know, one of the things that um, you also see is a kind of arrogance and a kind of complacency about privilege, which, you know, privilege becomes invisible um, to people that have it sometimes. And the opposite of what you're saying really, um, the empathy dies because, you know, people think that their, their world is the standard of everybody's existence and they can't see outside their own bubble. and and in that, in that moment, you know, thinking about some of the, you know, thinking about Don Bash, for example, somebody that doesn't, has never studied Ao Māori, for example, um, but will speak about it and will say things about it which are derogatory and diminishing, without any sense of the hurt and the harm that causes. You know, has never been with a, a young person crying, uh, because you know, they're at university, but they can't believe they're worthy to be there because they've been told so often that they ought to be doing hairdressing or, or tourism or something. And, you know, if you haven't experienced uh, the harm, the hurt, the pain, uh, which you as a GP have done, obviously, with your patients, you know, privilege can be, can be this kind of... Um, it can be this insulating force where you harm so many other, and hurt so many other people. And I think we've seen that in the legal profession recently. I think, I think we see it in our country, we see it in Parliament all the time. Um, and for me, you know, of the complexities that we're talking about, uh, it's not only insecurity that damages you know, social relations and the worth makes other people doubt their own worth and that robs them of their dignity and their self-respect and causes all sorts of things that then go wrong um, in families and households in the legal system and so on. It's, it's arrogance, it's um, believing that my way is the only way and enforcing that on others and seeing them as lesser beings. And if we could get rid of a lot of that, if, if more people would listen to the voices of others, see the, the impact of privilege, on, on the lives of people that don't share it, um, then I think, and in a small country, I, I believe you can do that. In, in a small country, I think we're very, very capable of doing that. I
7: think also a really key next step to that, Dame Anne, is to, from my perspective anyway, is to turn privilege into action. And you know, there are so many of us in this room who are blessed with extraordinary privileges. And, you know, when the question is, what can we do? It's to think to ourselves, actually, what do we have the power to influence within our own lives? You know, whether it's, say, taking on um, uh, an apprentice, uh, if, if you know, if you're a plumber, or uh, speaking out, or jo- joining a an advocacy group, or um, helping to uh, talk, advocate for people to have pay rises who are in, in you know low paid professions, or whatever it is, it's actually taking the privileges that we have been granted totally arbitrarily a lot of the time, and making them work for others. Sorry,
4: carry on. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I was raised middle class, so somewhat privileged. I was given a good education, both private school and public. But at the age of 16, when I reconciled my gender issues and made an individual decision that I was going to forge ahead with that, not really understanding what I was going to, I just dived into the abyss because it felt right for me and for me to be able to live in my own skin as it was at the time. It came at an awful cost, but some of that privileged upbringing I had when I suddenly was plunged into the depths of of the twilight world and just the circumstance of a young transgender person at that time in the 1970s was a cruel and evil place uh, to be. It was a culture shock that I just hadn't expected and had never given thought about before. But there I was. Some of the advantage of that privilege for me was it gave me a determination because I knew I was a worthy person. I knew I had intelligence. I knew that faffing around on the red light scene of Vivian Street was not where I wanted to be. From the very first client I ever had in the sex industry to the very last I had, I hated every minute of it. Yet oddly enough, the camaraderie built with my peers in that scene at that time was somehow provided a security, believe it or not, um, of being able to tautoko, to support each other in this horror uh, we were living. If I hadn't had the privilege that had raised me up to that point and given to me a determination to move beyond it and get out of it, it was much easier to get stuck in the sex industry. It was a hell of a lot harder to climb out of it. But I eventually did. The day I could stop working in it and earn legitimate money um, in a real job was a liberation and it just provided me with motivation to move on. And uh, to improve, life improved, my self-worth, my esteem, and all of that grew, I went into film and television. This was regardless of my transsexuality, although that was, is what I was typecast as in those days of film and television, because roles were being written uh, that included our real lives as opposed to our caricature lives that were often the visibility that the rest of the nation would get to see. And I was pleased to be part of that pioneering piece of creativity as it came along in the 1980s. It provided me that privilege with the that I had from the very beginning uh, with the chutzpah, uh, the um a thing to give things a go that I might not want to you know have done before because I was still feeling that I was a subhuman as a trans person, and that I would never be taken seriously credibly, but it didn't mean to say that i wasn't worthy of being able to practice democracy if that 's what it Happened to turn out to be, and who the hell would have thought that that would have, and led me into another privileged life of being, well, an elected representative. But that privilege was bestowed upon me by ordinary, everyday New Zealanders who, in their own amazing minds, could look beyond my colourful past and life and look at the worth of the person that they would consider supporting to be their representative. That is a remarkable thing. That is a great privilege. But can I just finally say, on the matter of those who may have privileged backgrounds, they are not accept, exempt from the violence, the brutality, domestic or otherwise. And I certainly recognize that um, in the wider upper as I established anti-violence campaigns, et cetera, for some terrible child murders that happened in my area at around that time, that there were privileged, wealthy landowners whose wives, et cetera, were suffering terribly from the veil of silence around the violence they were experiencing. But outwardly, of course, Everything was fine. So no one is exempt, really, whether privileged or not, from some of the the realities that still occur out there. And getting back to the domestic violence thing and all of that, it permeates in, an, in a twilight world and we must expose it, and we are, thanks to people like these sitting here. And some amongst yourselves, no doubt. Come on, shut up, I'm sorry about Thank you. <laughs>
2: um, we are out of time, unless you've got a burning question that you need to get off your chest and we'll not be able to sleep tonight,
10: unless you ask it, all right? Thank you, Georgina, for that perfect segue into my question which is I've really appreciated hearing the different analyses tonight, but one of the things that concerns me sometimes is that analyses can sometimes distract and perhaps um, obfuscate what the real issue is, the basic issue, which is that all of these things that we're talking about only happen to people who have vaginas. um, Violence happens almost exclusively in the family setting by men against women, Um, oftentimes those men don't commit violence against anybody else. There is a a target for their violence. The pay gender gap only occurs because women are valued less and are paid less. And I'm interested in what the panel thinks about how different analyses can sometimes um, uh, perhaps um, act as um, as a veil upon what I think is the undeclared war of misogyny. I mean, behind all of this, we are talking about society, about individuals that hate women. And that's the only basis upon which these issues can occur. So I'm just interested in how the panel members might think that that analysis um, could be used maybe more forcefully, whether that's a bad idea, and how that interacts with the different analyses that you've talked about tonight.
2: What you were saying, Sasha, does that, do you agree with that, that men hate women?
6: And um, the other thing that I don't agree with is just analysis. Um, So I'm supposed to be an academic, but I want to do stuff. So um, I I have complete um, empathy with the point about... Are we just involved in some heuristic that distracts us from actually changing the world? I'm not and, saying that. Um, that was obviously my tra- personal transference. Apologies, because I, I think, but I think it is really important to talk about the tangible things that can be done to create um, the social habit that creates change. So, in our business, we sponsor women to go and do X experiences. Um, We have our own preferred procurement policy which privileges Māori businesses and particularly Māori women's businesses. So we are very intentional about absolutely everything that we do um, to engage with tangible change in the community while being mindful of how we interact with the structural points that need to change. And as we're mindful of that, we think about the things that have got us to where we are, and recognizing that what has got us here will not get us there. Um, And the washing machine has historically been a tool of liberation, which drives me crazy, Um, as a point of principle. But the amount of time that was needed to do washing that was then taken away and created the space for women to do whatever, much of which was educational purposes, um, that we have to value the things that don't seem like a straight-line solution to some of the structural challenges that we've got, like the invention of the washing machine that um, gave us greater opportunities for education and everything that flows
3: from that. So, do you see… Can I just just chip in here too, because I think that… In many ways, analysis is helpful because it's not always a matter of of personal emotion such as hatred. I mean, if you look at the relative roles of men and women um, from for a very long time in in, in the European legacy, if you like, you know, you go back to you go back to the book, the book of Genesis, you can look at the story of Adam and Eve. You can also track into the legal system and you can look at the, the doctrine of coverture, which prevailed until remarkably recently in our history where, where women were legally covered by their husband.
10: I went to law school too. Yeah,
3: so, so the, the, the whole doctrine of coverture I think was, was a kind of way, of, a habit of mind, which is translated into so many of our, you know, our architect- literature, um, so many of our conventions, legal um, structures, And so it's very difficult to get rid of these kinds of things. You have to replace them with something better, I think. And that's why I think the idea of equality and of complementarity and of seeing men and women as in balance with each other in some deep sense and looking for philosophies that will enable us to see each other like that um, and, and to rejig our relationships within families, within businesses, within our communities with a new kind of vision because the old one has served us so badly, you know. It's that idea of the great chain of being, you know, command and control structures. It's wrecked, it's wrecked so many um, lives, but it has an impact on the environment, our relationship with the living world as well. And we need new philosophies, we need new, new ways of thinking about these matters. And I'm hopeful about the younger generation. I think they're striving towards them.
7: I just want to say though that I don't want that to be fully women's responsibility because I do see what you're saying in talking about misogyny and I do think that it is high time for men to have a look at the way that they may have Uh, you know, created the world and the things that they may have perpetuated. Um, So, you know, I I love all of the ideas that we talk about and all of the change that we're trying to bring about. But this so often is women's work, and I'm bloody sick of it. It's exhausting. We've been fighting this fight for effing ever. And it's time for the men to freaking stand up. So I do have this view that, well, yes, we should absolutely complement each other and we should be equal. Dudes, it's time to equally do your share of the work. Come on, you know. Like, I, I, I Mama needs a wine and a sit down.
4: Can I just make an observation uh, regarding your your question, which is huge um, in, in many ways. I had an experience on both sides of the fence. You made a comment about you know um, hatred towards anything that has a vagina, and prior to my having a vagina. Um, (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Um, (laughs) I was a very beautiful unspring pass, I could pass easily um, as indeed being a female. Um, I was 20 odd years of age and in 1979, I got pack-raped in mm. Sydney. and This is prior to my reassignment surgery, which occurred in 1984. And as the ordeal began to unfold, I stupidly went, I was at Lay Girls' nightclub, met four guys, two of them were Kiwis, old chummy-chummy, I'd only been in town a month or so, they invited me out for a joint. Oh yes, oh yes, please. And off I went out with them, stupid me, and into a car, And the next thing you know, we're driving along and at some point, my street smarts kicked in and I thought, oh, okay. I think we're in an uncomfortable situation and as it turned out, it was. And the thing that powered through my mind as the inevitable was coming toward me, Mm -hmm. I suppose, was, oh God, do they know that I'm not a real woman? Hey, what an assumption to make, oh my God, do they know? And was it gonna make me any safer if Mm. I was? Or was it gonna be even worse than I could imagine when it was revealed that I had a penis? Beautiful tits, fabulous hair, lovely makeup, looked fantastic, very desirable. And that was one of the most horrifying, Things that happened. All sorts of street smarts kicked in to minimise the damage that was wrought upon me that night. But it didn't stop them Mm. from raping me. Penetration the lot, Mm. regardless of the penis that was there. That was odd. I've never had, thank God, any experience post-vagina. Like that. (laughs) It's just an odd thing about that, so Doesn't
1: I just think happen, on the one hand, the they
4: saw me as a, as a very attractive young lady they were gonna have their way with, but once discovering that I wasn't quite like that and with some of my shooting around, and I won't explain now, but um, of how to minimise what was gonna happen to me, but I got one of them to be more protective of me. And um, oh yeah, they violated me. It was awful and brutal, but it could have been worse. I thought I was gonna die. I didn't have a vagina, but I had the outward appearance of having one. And so I think it supports your point in lots of ways. Um, if I had been ugly, looked like a construction worker with a frock on and a bit of lipstick and a terrible wig, it probably wouldn't have happened. I would have been beaten up for other reasons <laughs> called transphobia, homophobia, mm-hmm. uh, whatever you like. But, uh, yeah. Sorry, I just
2: It's interesting, hatred of the other, one way or the other. Um, We are out of time. Uh, Thank you very much. In my more despondent moments, when I think that we'll never get there, I will think of these women who've been good enough to join us tonight and I'll think of you guys too, so thank you.